Good morning. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 38 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Last week, we had a tremendous conversation with James Eklund about the anti-speculation issue. There was so much to discuss that we decided we should break and come back this week. So here we are with James again. James, thank you very much for uh, continuing this conversation. It's good to be with you again. James, we really covered a lot of ground last week. It was most informative. If okay with you, let's pick up on anti-speculation by discussing case law just a little. I think the anti-speculations laws are based on precedents set a long time ago. Justice Hobbs quoted uh, on anti-speculation some cases in like 1894 and 1898, and I'm going, good God. God, if we have to reach that far back in case law, women wouldn't have the right to vote. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, the concept of stare decisis is you, you very reluctantly change precedent because that's the whole bedrock of our judicial jurisprudence is respecting precedent, yeah. right? But you're you're right that if there are instances where you have to go back that far to find the situation, maybe the fact pattern that's most analogous to the facts that are in front of you as a as a judge or a justice in Justice Hobbs' case, it is difficult to analogize to a different time place when the state looked nothing like it does now. I right. mean, it, it primarily agricultural, it was primarily mining, rural. You know, most people in the state's population would say that they lived a rural lifestyle. And now the vast, vast majority, uh, 90% of people live in urban areas yep. in yep. our state. So it's flipped. And, and so it is appropriate for the legislature to change laws to catch the laws up with culture. Absolutely. I agree with you on this anti-speculation thing. It's a private property right. It is legal, isn't it, for an individual or a company to buy agricultural water rights and let them sit and continue to be used on that farm and then later sell them. Yes. And in fact, we, we do that all the time. And we want, especially if you read our state water plan, we want to encourage production agriculture in Colorado. We do not want buy and dry. So if we don't want buy and dry, then we need to be creative about what we allow an agricultural producer to do with their water. They need to be able to lease it, they need to be able to rotational fallow. They need to do the things that are going to keep them in perpetuity in long-term agriculture. And saying to them, well, uh, we don't think you should be allowed to sell your water or attract outside investment, that does damage to the idea of alternatives to buy and dry. This is the only place that you and I will probably disagree. <laughs> Frankly, I see nothing wrong with buying dry. Yeah, be nice if we had enough water to serve both municipalities and farms. Clearly, we don't. So the water has to come from the farms. Now, I understand after talking to Alex Davis, yeah, you may be able to postpone that buy and dry 
by using following or, but some point in time, the cities are going to need that water this year, next year, and every year, which means it can't be used on the farm. Yeah, if they to buy me, it, it looks it looks like we're trying to fool ourselves with buying dry. It's well, coming. if they if they buy it, then you're absolutely right. They will dry it. They can put off drying it, and and many of them have Thornton, Aurora, Colorado Springs Utilities. There are a bunch of them that have said, "Okay, well, we're going to buy something, but we don't need it for twenty or thirty. We don't years. need it right now, so we're going to lease it back to the farmer, and and that. But that's still that's buy and dry if you ultimately dry it. Yeah. What I'm saying is what I'd like to see, and I think it's true in the water plan, is that we need to see alternatives to that as options to the producer. If they want to sell, there is no way that we should prohibit them from selling. And I disagree with this anti-speculation doctrine on many points, but that that's one of them, that it's encumbering or it's, it's prohibiting this sale or making it hard for a producer to do what they need to do with their assets. If they want to sell it, they should be allowed to do that. The middle ground between our positions on this, if even if you don't see a problem with buy and dry, I think you would be okay uh, you tell me if we had other options for producers. So they didn't just have a very binary choice. Either I sell my water to the municipality for X amount of dollars, or I continue farming and see if I can make a go of it in a bad commodity price environment. And that's a really tough choice. They're either in or they're out. What I'm saying is, I would like to see as many options that get us away from that binary kind of dilemma that we can have. I mean, if we can have alternatives to buy and dry as options, then I want to see those. And that's what we set out in the water plan. We tried to list as many creative ways for somebody to remain in agriculture and make money on their water and on their water rights but stay in production agriculture. And you're right. If it's a situation where, hey, I'm my kids aren't coming back to farm and ranch anymore and the commodity price isn't looking good next year or it may not be good enough for me or my debt profile is what it is, I need to sell. There should absolutely be nothing that our government does to impede the value or diminish the value that a producer can expect to see from the sale of their asset. I, I think you can do, it's a mind made up situation where that's just, they're going to do that. Then that so be it. Then that's where the water use is going to go. But I think there are around the, the edges. And then there are people like me and my family who will say, you know, we'll, we'll never sell our ranch and we don't care how much money is waved in our face. In between those, there is a whole bunch of lived experiences on farms and ranches in Colorado that would benefit from alternatives to buy and dry, I think. That's just kind of where I am on yeah. it. And I'm seeing things through a black and white lens. I'm not aware of the alternatives. And if they're out there, great. Let's use them. Well, one one of them is, you know, and going back to this anti-speculation concept is if 
If I am in agriculture and I want to adopt a regenerative practice on my farm or on my ranch, and I want to... I'm sorry, would you define regenerative yes. practice? What, what, yeah, what so mean? a regenerative practice is... It means a whole bunch of it's. It's a definition that's very diverse. In there are a lot of, of different. Builder. Yeah, a lot of different people say it means something different to them. What it means for me is instead of just putting carbon into the atmosphere through tilling or through your grazing practices and methane from your cows, instead of just putting carbon into the atmosphere, you are you are instead sequestering carbon in your soil. And it's regenerative to take carbon out of the atmosphere through evapotranspiration and the photosynthesis of a plant and put it into the root zone and let that be where the carbon lives instead of tilling the ground and kicking that carbon back up into the atmosphere. So you, you, you adopt no-till practices, you adopt rotational grazing that uses the animals themselves as they move. These are hooved animals that put the carbon and the microbiology into the soil that allows for a healthy soil complex. By breaking up the surface. Yeah. You're breaking up uh, manure, you're, you're putting fertilizer to work on fields, and it's getting more and more scientific every day about how you do that. But it is not cheap sometimes. It can be expensive to change your practices in agriculture, if you, especially if your great-great-grandfather did it that way. Doing something different can require capital. And again, I get back to this point that why would we limit the ability of agricultural businesses to access capital? Why would we say, well, we don't trust you enough to access that capital uh, to make that switch to regenerative agriculture? We, we, we want to limit your ability to do that. And uh, that's what this anti-speculation, anti-investment speculation bill would do. One, one of the things that I think agriculture, you'll see this, this is my crystal ball, maybe it won't come to pass, but if it does, I'll say I told you so, is agriculture could be part of the biggest, one of the biggest drivers of response to climate change just by changing the way we do agriculture. And in order to do that, maybe I have to buy a different implement. Maybe I need a different uh, method that changes the input structure. Maybe I'm not buying phosphorus and nitrogen anymore. Maybe I'm buying a no-till drill. When I do those changes, I need to be able to pay for those changes in order to implement them. Accepting outside investment is a way to do that. I think that this bill that we've been talking about would make it harder for that investment to come into Colorado and into agriculture in general. And that's one of the biggest beefs I have with it. Yeah. I'm not arguing that. But now an investor comes in and buys a farm. That investor wants a profit. And I don't think the investor will be another farmer. 15 years ago, maybe. Fifteen years ago, the price of ground in Welk County was about $3,000 an acre, including the water. Mm -hmm. Include At that price, I think it was possible for, 
for an outside investor to come in and buy. And agriculture make a slight profit, maybe one or two percent. But my gut tells me, and I'm, I've talked to a lot of investors, that they're after the water long term. Mm-hmm. It's the water that they really think is going to go up in value. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, there are a lot of really smart attorneys out there working for the cities. There are a lot of smart attorneys working for investor groups that can put together a portfolio of water and or maybe storage and figure out how to share the water with the cities. That investment, that kind of investment in water would be good for everybody. And I think there are investors that are thinking about that. It's sure, we want to make money, but we're putting together a plan that the city doesn't see or doesn't have the financial resources to do that. And then secondly, cities cannot take a risk. They don't take risk. An investor coming in risks a bunch of money thinking he can come up with a better way to move the water to the city or maybe share it with the farmers. Why not give him that opportunity? He's taking that risk. Well, that is uh, it's a good question. The, from the municipal water provider standpoint, they've always tried to guard against that. And I'm sure your conversation with Alex Davis showed this, that they, they would rather uh, have the control uh, over that water resource. And they don't want somebody, they would consider that model you just laid out to be inserting a middleman into the equation, into the transaction. And they don't want that middleman. Because they feel like, well, that, that person's going to ask for money in exchange for the risk that you articulated. But that middleman may come up with a better plan. If the middleman may come up with a better plan, but they kind of view that as their job. That's what they are, were hired to do, was to come up with the best plan possible. And they don't want you to question that plan. <laughs> so so that that's I think that's knee-jerk uh, response, or maybe it's not knee-jerk, it's very calculated response that you would get from a municipal water provider if you were to ask them that question. For me, you're you're gaining all sorts of efficiency for the agricultural producer if you make the market the arbiter of the transaction. If you get the further away from the market that you get, the worse that gets for the producer. The more we get to this binary choice of, well, am I just going to sell it outright and do the buy and dry thing? Or am I going in and just try and make a go of it? I want to, somewhat selfishly for my own family, I want us to have more options than just that binary choice. I have no problem with you exploring all those options you can. Yeah. Uh, You know, I'm... But you're right. I mean, the the value's gone up a lot and... There may be a point at which farming and ranching just doesn't doesn't work, but I want to see and hopefully forestall that coming to pass statewide. That's why I'm. I and full disclosure, I do advise uh, private equity firms that invest in this space, and the ones I am fortunate to advise are, and I say no to the ones that just want to hold on and do the speculation thing that isn't allowed under Colorado law or try and skirt it somehow. I'm fortunate to get to advise uh, equity, private equity uh, that 
is interested in what's good for the agricultural producer. They want to stay, they want to keep the land in production agriculture. And there are pieces of land that I can tell you with certainty that would not be in production agriculture today, but for that outside investor coming in and investing in it. Really? If, if really? they, if, and the people in the different districts, you saw one on the panel with the Colorado Ag Water Alliance, Joe Bernal, who uh, farms in the Grand Valley Water Users Association, north of Grand Junction. His perspective is, hey, this is working for me. This is working for our region because th these lands are staying in production agriculture and they're competing with subdivisions that are incredibly, you know, the, the explosive growth that you alluded to uh, is, is happening all over the state, including in places like Grand Junction. Former alfalfa fields are now subdivisions. Really? Well, if no, I, I haven't had a developer come and say, hey, will you advise me on turning this alfalfa field into uh, houses? So I, I can't say what my response would be, but the people that I work with are investing in agriculture. They could easily have gone the route of, we'll just throw up a bunch of houses in there and we'll flip it and make a bunch of money and then we'll be out of here. That's what the people that drafted this legislation or kind of thought this up, I think they were they were trying to prevent or forestall or make harder people from outside of Colorado doing that kind of thing, buying a piece of property with the water, turning it into something else that's not agriculture, and then leaving town with a bunch of the profit. And, you know, the state gets fleeced because of that practice. And I wouldn't represent people that were trying to do that. I'm fortunate that I get to represent people who are interested in staying, keeping land in production agriculture. And that's fun for me because that's, like I said, that's my right, heritage. That's your background. We've answered most of the questions going in a big circle, but it's been both educational and entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of questions I want to jump down to. The study group of which you were a part highlighted eight options. Mm. Is there some place I can go and read what those eight options were? Uh, so uh, let me just correct you. So I actually wasn't on the study group. Oh, there were some okay. very smart people uh, like Alex Davis, Joe Bernal. Anyway, that's what, a, what, back to the study group highlighted eight yeah. options. Can I access those eight options or can you send them to me? Later? Well, let me say something about that. So I followed I was not a member of the work group, but I did follow the work that they did. And it was good that they had two actual water right owners that own water personally on the task force, but it was only two of the many people that they had on there. And what the committee produced was a report, but that report, and it's very, it's a voluminous report because the legislature made clear to the state engineer and the attorney general's office that was overseeing or facilitating that work group, that they wanted to see all the spaghetti that was thrown up against the wall. And they started off their presentation of the report by saying, nothing in this report is actionable and there are no recommendations. We have not a single recommendation for you to take up. 
So please don't run a bill unless you have a lot of further conversation with people on this task force and all other people in the water community, because we don't have any recommendations for Gee, you here. Think they would withdraw say, the bill. Oh my gosh. Well, if you, there are no recommendations here. So based on that, I think most people in the water community felt, well, that means that they're going to see the wisdom and not running a bill this session and maybe not ever. But they went through that hearing and then took the step of putting two bills on bill paper. The first would characterize anti-investment speculation as a bad thing, thing that we should guard against. I hate to sound like a broken record on this, but I think, you know, there's a disconnect between our urban and our rural uh, parts of our state and the country right now. We don't need this to kind of pour gasoline on that fire. And at the end of the day, what this whole thing boils down to is we have an opportunity with water to unite our community, our state, our region, our country, or we can divide ourselves with it. And we chose with things like the water plan, with things like the drought contingency plan on the Colorado River, we chose to unite on this resource as opposed to let it drive a wedge between us. If this bill passes, that wedge is going to be pounded in in a way that I just think we're going to regret down the road. The other thing I'm nervous about is this whole time, you and I have been talking in two different instances here about anti-speculation in Colorado. We could have been talking about the failing of the Colorado River system, the supply-demand imbalance that we face as a, as a state and as a Western half of the country. We could have been talking about water quality issues. We could have been talking about climate change. We could have been talking a bit more about regenerative agriculture. Those are issues and solutions that we need. And, and I'm talking about our generation uniting the state in common cause on the issue of water, not setting up this situation where we create monopolies out of municipal water providers and they're the only ones that can buy water. I will not sit idly by in silence while the that is done at the expense of agriculture in Colorado. I wouldn't be doing a service to my own family or any of my other clients if I did that. Okay. James, thank you so much for your input. It's very valuable. And as I said, both educational and frankly, entertaining. Any final comments? Just again, this is an important issue, whether you own water rights or not. If you use water in the state of Colorado, which if you live here, you do, then you should pay attention to issues like this, especially if you care about market-based economic capitalism. And if you care about a democracy, this is something to pay attention to. Thank you so much. Okay. My ears are hurting. So it's time to go listen to my favorite mountain stream. See you next time.